Well, last week we went through uh, John 1.1, as you may remember, uh, talked about the beginning of John's gospel. We talked about how uh, we talked about how the word, of course, was God, right? Currently is, right? He didn't cease to be. He still is. But how John uh, begins his book, and we talked about the underlying original language behind that and how John wrote that in such a, such a way to concisely convey the fact that Jesus is God, he's the word, and that he is God, but yet he is not the same as the Father, right? We talked about that and how John beautifully writes that. We talked about how John has a, has a Christology or a doctrine of Christ. And remember, we, we talked about how John focuses on sending throughout the book of John, how the Father sends the Son. And actually, that's going to come into play a little bit more uh, keenly or clearly when we talk about uh, the Son. And we talked about how we're going to talk about we were going to Originally, I had said we were going to do it this week, but we're not going to get to it. We'll talk about the doctrine of eternal generation, what that is and how important that is for our doctrine of God, our doctrine of Christ, our doctrine of the Trinity, how it has been uh, neglected or neglected or even dismissed, which I think we do to our own peril. And we'll talk about that next week on the 4th of July, Lord willing. And last week we uh, we talked a little bit about verses two and three, kind of just went through it pretty quickly, and I think it deserves a little bit more attention. So we'll go to John one verses two and three, and uh, if one of you men would be so kind as to read that for us, John one verses two through three. Okay, thank you, brother. So verse two. What's John saying about uh, what's John saying about Christ here in verse two? Right. That Christ is eternal. Right. Christ is eternal. And he kind of goes back to verse one, doesn't he? Right. He, He reiterates what we see in verse one, which says that, you know, in the beginning was the what? Word, right? So he's reiterating the fact that Christ was with God or the Father in the beginning. Okay, so that's verse two. Pretty straightforward. Any questions on any of that? All right, verse three. Verse three. All things were made through him. Now, again, we talked about this last week. We need to get into it just a little bit here. All right, so verse three. What's John essentially saying in verse 3? If you were to put it in your own words or to paraphrase it, what's John saying? He is the creator. He being who? Jesus. Jesus, right? Jesus is the creator. What else could we add to that? He was not created. And where do you get that from the text, brother? Yeah, that's true. That's a great deduction from, yeah, that's a good point, right? Christ is uncreated. Amen? We, we should, we should affirm that. Otherwise, you are an Arian. And Arianism was an old heresy that, uh, that we have to understand that Arians 
Okay, some people would say that Arians believed that Jesus was not God. Now, that's not true. Arians didn't believe that. Arians did believe that Jesus was divine, that he had godness, so to speak, but that he was the first of all created beings. Right? They couldn't, they couldn't get their minds around the fact that Jesus would be uncreated. So they would say that he was divine, but that he was uncreated, which of course is not orthodox, right? It's heresy. So the creeds, the Nicene Creed, when they flushed this out, said that Christ was begotten and not made. It always helps to go back to the creeds, right? They're not scripture, they're not inerrant, but they sure help. And we have a lot of uh, legacy and a lot of careful thought and prayerful reflection and interpretation of what is in the word of God that is contained in the creeds. And the creeds help us with that. And that actually, uh, next week, Lord willing, when we talk about eternal generation, it, it is a doctrine that is taught by scripture, but you have to like pull it out. You have to glean it from the text, right? You put all of the texts together to try to understand how is the son from the father and yet not made. But yes, verse three does indicate that all things are created through Jesus and that Jesus is not created. I hope everybody would agree with that. Amen. So what else? What are some other implications of this text? So Jesus was not made. What else could we say about verse three? What else can we say? Yeah, I would agree. I think this text is showing that in creation, Jesus himself, Christ, is the agent of creation, right? When, when God created all that there is, the Son was active in the creation. He's the agent by which the Father brings forth all that exists, which last week is very fitting because when we talked about the doctrine of the Word in the Old Testament, what is one of the things that God uses his Word to do? Create, right? So it's fitting that Jesus himself is called the Word. Right? That's, that's intentional. That's purposeful by John. To indicate that Jesus is that creative Word of, of the Father. So it says last week that everything that is created, everything that exists, that has been brought forth by God, has the signature of Jesus Christ written on. Everything. Right? All matter in the universe. For that matter, what else? What else besides the physical universe did Jesus create? Well, us, right? We're part of the physical universe, but we do have something that's immaterial, right? We have our soul. What else? I might be getting there, and by might I mean yes. Jesus created all the angelic beings, 
Correct? Which would mean, who else did he create? Satan. Right? The fallen angel. And because Jesus created him, that implies what? What's one thing that it implies? Rulership. Is Satan equal in power to Jesus Christ? No. Not even close. There is no dualism in Christianity. None. There is no equality in power between Jesus and Lucifer. None. Jesus is further above Satan further than we would be to a microbe. That has a lot of implications, doesn't it? Especially as our fight as as men to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors, and to love our wives, and to love our children, and to resist the evil one through the Spirit, we are joined to who? To Jesus Christ. So therefore, in our, in our war against the devil, whose power can we access? Christ. Now this, of course, does not mean that we will always succeed. You could probably look to yourself this morning and see how you failed in that. But there is no, there is room for hope, isn't there? The fact that we can access, we are joined with Christ through the Spirit, and we can go to him in our fight against the devil, of whom he is completely sovereign. Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. And how true that is, isn't it? Satan might be a foe, but he is a defeated foe, although now he goes about as a roaring lion. But he will see his ultimate defeat one day. And that is hopeful. But Christ, getting back to his sovereignty over all creation, all things belong to him. Right? What's the famous quote? There's not one square inch of the universe where Christ cannot claim mine. That's a little bit of a butchering of the quote, but... Christ is sovereign over all things. So John, right at the beginning, sets Jesus pretty high, doesn't he? His view of Christ is is very high. So it shows that he's sovereign. It shows that he is God because God creates. So in the beginning here, in verses 2 and 3, we have a very high Christology and a very high view of Christ. Any questions, comments on any of that? All right, verses 4 and 5. Would somebody care to read this? Amen. Thank you, brother. <clears throat> so, what book do you see echoed in these verses? You see any themes that you might have pointed out or seen earlier in the Bible in verses 4 and 5? 
Yeah, Genesis again, right? John is going back again to the beginning of the law, which is, is Genesis. And he's bringing out a few themes here. And he's echoing some themes in the book of Genesis. Shout them out, just one of them. Say, I heard light, heard darkness. What else? He separated the light from the darkness, right? How about life? How about life, right? Again, intentionally by John, he's going back to the book of Genesis to show again that, that Christ is creator, that Christ you know, existed from the beginning, that he was there, he was active in creation. And in Jesus himself is what? In him was life. Of course, another pointing to Christ's godness, right? Because who contains life in himself? God does, right? God creates, contains life in himself. You men have life but you don't have it in and of yourself, right? You are dependent upon another for it. You do not have life in and of yourself, but it is not the same with God. God is unlike any other, right? There is truly no one like him. He has life in and of himself. And this life was the light of men. Jesus as the light of men brings the knowledge of God to mankind. He brings the knowledge of God to mankind. Men cannot know God truly unless God reveals himself. Now, there's a lot we can get from creation. Romans 1 and Psalm 19 say quite a bit about that. And in your own time, you could read that. You can get quite a bit about God from creation himself. But it is woefully short, is it not? It's enough to condemn you, but it's not enough to save you. And it's not enough to reveal to you who he is in himself. But in this life, the light that reveals the knowledge of God is in Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, you know, last week we talked about how uh, John pulls from Isaiah, from his sending Christology. I think John may also be pulling from Isaiah a little bit more regarding this Jesus as light. Let's look at a couple of verses here. Let's go to Isaiah 9, verse 2. And Isaiah 49, 6. Isaiah 9, 2, and Isaiah 49, 6. John may be pulling from these verses here as well. Someone read Isaiah 9, 2 for us. Thank you. Does anybody know the context of this prophecy. What is this prophecy here? Any other verses around these verses that you might recall? 
Yes, unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, which is a prophecy of who? Birth of Christ. Yeah, Christ. Right? Christ. And that's, Isaiah 9 2 is in that context. As people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shown. This is a prophecy about the Messiah. About them who are in darkness, the light shines. And that is Christ revealing God himself to his people. I think it's pretty possible that John has that verse in mind when he's writing this, wouldn't you think? All right, Isaiah 49, verse 6. Men, one of you men read that. Okay, so we have a light, right, which is certainly for the nation of Israel, but as this verse tells us, that that is what? It's too small. It's too small. This servant of the Lord, and this is one of those servant songs in the book of Isaiah. There are four servant songs in the book of Isaiah that talk about the Lord's servant. This is talking about, again, the Messiah. That this one will raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. But what else will this Messiah do? He'll, he'll bring the nations in, right? He's a light to the nations. Not only does he reveal to Israel who God is, but he reveals to the world who God is. And that's critical, especially in the light of the fact that Israel themselves were called to be a covenant nation and a royal priesthood and to show the world who God was. By the way, and how they lived their life. Of course, how well did they do in that? Not good. Not good. They would just get started and then boom. Get in their trip over themselves and get in their own way and fall prey to their sin. So this light is going to show a great, this light will go in a land of deep darkness and reveal God, and he will reveal God to the world, to the nations, to the Gentiles. Let's go to one other passage, Psalm 36. Verse 9. Psalm 36, verse 9. Someone read that for us. That's a different verse, I think, brother, unless I misspoke. Go ahead. Go ahead. Read Psalm 36, 9. Yeah, Psalm 36, verse 9, brother. So we have both both concepts in this passage, don't we? In God, because that's the context, is in God is the fountain of life. 
And in your light, we see what? Light. Forgive me, I can't recall if this is in the Nicene Creed or uh, subsequent, but when it talks about Christ and it talks about him proceeding from the Father, it calls him true light of light, meaning that he proceeds from God the Father and he himself is light. And you can kind of see that a little bit here in Psalm 36, 9, can't you, right? In God himself, in his light, we see light. We can talk more about that next week. So this revelation of the knowledge of God, it shines in the midst of what? Darkness. Darkness. What kind of darkness is John talking about here? The world? How else can we say that? False spiritual darkness? Yes? Yeah, and when, and when we talk about the world, when the phrase, this is a, this is a phrase that Christians throw out a lot, and it's true, because the Bible uses the term this way. But what do we mean when we say the world? What do we mean by that? Simple mankind, do we, are we talking necessarily about this ball of dirt and water that we sit on? No, not all the time. Sometimes it can mean that. But when we say the world, we're talking about the evil world system, the rebellion, those who are united, so to speak, the evil world system that is against our God. And this light shines in the darkness, and it has not done something. Now, this is interesting because uh, look at the comparison of these passages, right? Three versions have what word? The darkness has what? Not overcome it, right? But the NASB has something else, doesn't it? What word does it have? Comprehend. The word here is katalambano. Right in the Greek uh, English lexicon, def- uh, has this note about it. it. Says in John one five, a wordplay involving both meanings may be intended, something which is typical of Johannian style. So there may be kind of a couple meanings here, right? And use both in the text that the darkness didn't understand the light that Jesus brought, which may be a foreshadowing of the verses we are to read a little bit later here in a moment, or, and it could also include in the definition or the meaning, the fact that the darkness warred against the light but was unable to overcome it. Personally, I lean more towards the overcome, especially <clears throat> especially in light of the fact that if he's echoing Isaiah, right, Christ is being sent on a mission to save his people from darkness, right? He has that sort of war and deliverance mentality. So I would kind of lean towards that, but hey, maybe John does have a double meaning intended. Who knows? He's smarter than me, smarter than us. He could do that, right? Holy Spirit could inspire him to do that. But any way you take it, Jesus is not defeated in his mission. 
he does overcome the darkness, although many are most in his day and age reject him, as we'll see in a moment. Any questions or comments on any of this? All right, verses 6 through 7. Someone will read that for us. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So, who's the author talking about here? John the Baptist, right? Not himself. John is, uh, the, the apostle is, is very humble. He, uh, he tries to tell you who he is near the end of the book, but he's certainly not talking about himself here. He's talking about the one, again, that is foreshadowed or prophesied in what other book? Isaiah. Let's go there. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. <clears throat> Excuse me. Someone read Isaiah 40 and verse 3. This is at the crucial turning point in the book of Isaiah, where God has pronounced you know, judgment on his people, right? And you have a, a break where you have a narrative in, in Isaiah 36 through 39 and verse 40, the book kind of changes gears. And God starts talking about his salvation, his deliverance for his people. In Isaiah 40, he talks about this one who will prepare the way of the Lord to make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In ancient culture, you would you could send somebody up ahead of you to when a I believe a king would come, someone of great importance would come. You'd have somebody who would go before you, them to straighten the road out, remove the obstacles. In the road, so that that person of great importance could come without hindrances. John is that person. The Baptist is that person. And that's not the only place, of course, that John the Baptist is talked about, right? Let's go to the book of Malachi. Book of Malachi. If we were in a D group and you were uh, had the opportunity to study the book of Malachi, you would have looked at these verses. So Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and then we'll read in chapter 4 as well, the same book. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Someone read that for us. Thank you. So I would argue that in the book, in that verse, we have two messengers. We have two. The messenger of the covenant, who would be the Messiah. And then you have the messenger, 
who will prepare the way. And that would be John the Baptist. In Malachi 4, 5 and 6, same book, chapter later, verses 5 and 6 in chapter 4. Someone read that for us. Okay. So this is where in um, in Judaism you had the expectation of Elijah coming. And this really uh, built up in the people. As a matter of fact, in the Seder celebration of Passover, Jewish families will set out an empty chair. For someone. Does anybody know who that empty chair is for? It's for Elijah. It's for Elijah. So this expectation that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. And he would turn the hearts of their fathers to their children. And the hearts of children to their fathers. I would argue that what he's talking about there is a return of the children of Israel to the teachings of their fathers and to the covenant that their fathers followed, which, of course, was what covenant? Mosaic, right? To turn them back to God. But in any case, however you take that, verses uh, 6 and 7, of course, you're talking about John the Baptist, who he will, after he's done with his prologue and his introduction, go a little bit more into John's testimony about who he is. But he is a witness to bear witness about the light. Now let's go on to verses 8 and 9. Let's read that. Thank you. So what does John make sure that we understand? John the Apostle, what's something that he makes sure we understand about John the Baptist? Right. Right. He's come to turn Israel to repent. Right. That's his role. The Baptist's role is to point, is to point the children of Israel back to God in repentance so that their hearts are ready for when the Messiah comes. He goes to great pains to say that he is to bear witness to the light, but he himself is not that light. Important principle we can glean from that, men, is that God can make it very clear what he reveals, and we'll still mess it up. And we need to be reminded repeatedly of what the truth is. The Baptist never claimed to be the Messiah, ever. He said, there's one that comes after me. What? Whose sandals I am what? Not worthy of strap. I'm not worthy to untie them. 
What a humbling statement that is, right? And yet, there may be some people who are still under the mistaken notion that maybe he's the light that's going to come into the world. Even though John explicitly said, I am not. We need to continually remind ourselves of the truth, even if it's explicitly stated in the scripture, because if not for us that we won't mess it up, there might be somebody in our lives who will. And we can continually guide them in the truth that the scripture clearly lays out again and again and again. There's only one that the Bible points to who's the light of the world. Not any servant of man. Now, any comments on that before we keep pushing forward? How about in verse uh, 9? The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. God is, Jesus is the revelation of God to all people, right? That kind of goes back to that verse, doesn't it? Right? The Messiah is a light to who? To the whole world. To the whole world. Not just Israel. All right, John uh, 1, verses 10 through 11. All right, someone read that. The creator of the universe, the one on the one for whom his brand is branded into every object of all of creation, whether physical or spiritual. To put a mental picture on it, if you want to imagine JC and branded on every molecule of this universe is branded on it. All things belong to him. He's in this world. The world's made through him. And yet the world what? Didn't know him. I don't know who you are. I don't recognize you. What a sad verse that is. Men, can you imagine your own children whom you have begotten looking at you and not knowing who you are? Can you imagine the awfulness of that? Of course, God is is not like us. He's far above us. Yet John's setting the stage for those who are reading this gospel in anticipation that Jesus is not going to receive a warm welcome. And as a matter of fact, in the world, even today, Does he still receive one? They don't even recognize who he is. How does, what are a few of those ways that it manifests in our world today? That Jesus is not recognized as the creator and the sovereign Lord overall. You first. 
Yeah, he's a historical nice guy. You, brother. Yeah. Right. Right. No. Can't square that. How about idolatry? Scientism. Explain that, brothers, for us, what scientism is. Right. Until we don't. Right. Until we correct. Oh, yeah. What we said before, that was wrong. But now we're sure about it. They used to. I won't go into that. All right. Um, Or they make him into something that he's not just a great prophet. They don't recognize him for who he revealed himself to be. And yet it's, it's even worse. The world didn't know him, and he came into his own, and to his own what? His own what? People. Who's he talking about there? Israel. Israel didn't even recognize him. Now think about that. The covenant God, Yahweh himself, who personally came to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre to tell him the wonderful news about how he would fulfill his promise in a year that he would have a son. That one who came to Abraham and dwelt in his tent. The one who revealed the covenant name to Moses in the burning bush. The one who revealed himself to Joshua as the commander of the army of the Lord. The one who put his great power and grandeur on display when he judged Egypt. Who appeared before the people in smoke and fire on the mountain to give the law of God. Who led his people for 40 years in the wilderness. The one whose Shekinah glory resided in Zion's temple. The one who was the favorite subject of David in the song. The Lord said to my Lord, the one to whom all revelation was pointed, the one whom Isaiah saw in the temple, but John talks about later on, that one, his own people, who God constantly revealed who he was, didn't even know who he was. That's a shocking statement. God can keep giving the revelation over and over and over and over and over. But unless God begets you through the Spirit, you will never understand it. The problem's not revelation because Israel's got tons of that. He even showed up in pre-incarnate appearances and they still didn't get it. And yet this is not unexpected because Scripture even says this is going to happen. Even beforehand. Turn to Psalm 118, 22. Psalm 118, 22. Someone read Psalm 118, 22. 
rejected. And a psalm that points to the triumphal entry. Jesus is rejected. Zechariah 12, 10. Let's read that. Zechariah 12, verse 10. Someone read that. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Not only did they did the word say they would reject him, but they pierce him. And of course, let's go to Isaiah chapter 53. This whole servant song talks about this as a whole, but let's focus in on verse 3 of chapter 53. Isaiah 53, verse 3. Despised. When you read this servant song, see, Israel is looking at the Messiah and realized, oh man, he came and we didn't even realize who he was. We thought God was punishing him for his own sin. But really, God was punishing Jesus for whose sin? Ours. And we esteemed him not. The rejection of Jesus by Israel is not a backup plan by God. It was written in the plan from the very beginning. It was the way by which Christ would actually set us free from our sins. And the mechanics of which he would set free the sins, the sins of Gentiles, all of which were sitting in this room right now. Praise God. John's saying from the very beginning of his gospel that this word, this divine word, this creator, this covenant God would be rejected, but it's all part of the plan of God. And for those who know their word, knew this was coming from the very beginning. And yet, as we'll see as we study the life of Christ, did they understand it? No. There was one who did. Remember in the temple when Jesus was dedicated? Who alluded to the death of Christ? Simeon did. And a sword will pierce through your heart also. But Jesus, when he started talking to the disciples about his crucifixion, they, they couldn't even handle it. Like, what? No. Peter's like, oh, Lord, we got to disabuse you of this idea real quick because, uh, you know, there's not room in my theology for a suffering Messiah. Uh-uh. Yet it's right there in the book, isn't it? Any thoughts, comments on any of that? Yeah, brother. Yeah? 
Yeah, it's certainly an echo and it repeats itself, doesn't it? Biblical revelation repeats itself a lot. But we have good news in 12 and 13, though, don't we? Let's read that, verses 12 and 13, and we'll be done. Someone read that for us. Amen. That word right, that is the Greek word exousia, definition, the power to do something with or without an added implication of authority. The word could mean power. Who can bring themselves to life? Who can cause themselves to be born? Hey, men, any of your children cause themselves to be born? I don't even, yeah, I could get eyewitness testimony from you and all of you would testify, nope, I was there, uh-uh. But for those who did believe in his name, he gave the power, the authority to become God's children. Now, God talks about Israel being his child. And in Exodus 4, um, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, Israel's talked about his sons of God in Hosea 11.1. 1. God talks about his firstborn son being brought out of Egypt. But the amazing thing is, is that Gentiles who are not a part of God's people now what? Are grafted. They are. They are. And they're not children of God because of their bloodline, right? Where they're not of blood, nor by human ingenuity or planning, nor by man's own will. Man, I don't know how you get around this verse. We talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation. I don't know how you do it. But born of God. You can have all the revelation in the world you want. But unless God gives you the power to become children of God, you're not a child of God. But for those who receive Christ, he does give the power to do that. Amen? Amen. Any thoughts, comments before we close?